It's a great pleasure to welcome you all to this Mitchell Institute conversation, part of a podcast series created at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice here at Queen's University, Belfast. I'm Richard English, Director of the Institute, and for today's conversation, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Michael Semple, Practitioner Chair at the Mitchell Institute and one of the world's leading authorities on Afghanistan. Michael, you've analysed closely the experience of people under the previous period of Taliban rule in Afghanistan. Could you say something about the likely effects of the new Taliban regime? There have been disappearances and executions, but also there are implications for many other people's daily experience in the country. Uh, Yes, Richard, uh, we're we're talking in um, second half of, uh, of September uh, just over a month since the Taliban took over, and we're already seeing momentous changes uh, sweeping across Afghanistan. Uh, I think that one of the the one of the first things that we see is like a, a change in the a change in the geography of the impact of the conflict because it is still is a conflict. Much of the much of the conflict was taking place in the rural areas until only a few months ago. Now it's the urban population which is largely feeling the the brunt of the forcible imposition of Taliban rule. And when we look at, at sort of people deciding to to flee the country, uh, the latest wave of refugees or intending refugees uh, is largely from the the urban areas. Uh, so you know one of the one of the impacts of the the Taliban takeover in August of 2021 has been a sort of a change in the geography of who feels the effect of, of conflict. But when we look at actually actually what is happening, uh, it is right that there are headlines around Taliban going and hunting people who they consider to be a threat. They are uh, enemies, people against whom they have grievances. A lot of this has focused on uh, former members of the security forces, uh, but uh, also, it extends to to civil society and people who've taken a, a public position against them. For example, just today, I talked with a young civil society activist whose father was uh, actually a very well-known sort of practitioner of informal justice. I mean, he really had in the in the informal justice community, this are the local mediators. He really had the status of a an accomplished judge, uh, but his uh, son. Uh, as a civil society activist, appeared on television various times, highly critical of the Taliban, uh, and now they're hunting him down and he's on the run. Uh, so that they, you know, they, the Taliban have been extending their net quite widely, um, and there really, you know, there really is a sense of you know, people being hunted. Uh, but I think that the, the, what's a more pervasive effect, and one which will um, really sort of set the dynamics in the in the weeks ahead uh, is the way in which the the Taliban's forcible takeover of power has put the economy on hold, plunged Afghanistan really into an economic crisis, which means in very real terms, people are struggling to feed themselves. And this is also particularly in the urban areas where much of the, the working population was uh, involved in you know, basically serving the state. So, you know, you've got 
300,000 or so security forces personnel you know, immediately out of, a wor uh, out of work. Uh, but um, the, the civil service was, uh, um, was even larger than that. And, but you also have you know, contractors uh, you know, who were uh, working for the state, people involved in aid projects for which the, um, the, the resources were channeled through the, the state. But then, of course, you've got these, you know, the ripples through the economy, uh, shopkeepers uh, who used to supply goods on credit to salaried employees who now no longer have a job and suddenly the shopkeeper simply can't replace their stock. The whole economy is grinding to a halt. Thanks very much, Michael. The, the Taliban is far from monolithic. Can you say something to explain for people about the factional power struggles currently going on within the movement? Yes, one of the, the fascinating contradictions about the, the Taliban is that the outside, they're pretty good at presenting an image of unity. Uh, and you know, anytime you ask a sort of a Taliban leader, you know, oh, do you have factions? They say, no, 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 we have one emir, uh, one movement, uh, we all sort of follow the same line. Uh, and you know, I've, you know, I've always you know, you know, uh, taught people uh, to take that seriously. In some ways, they've been a more united movement than pretty much any other major uh, military political movement inside Afghanistan. And yet, when you look inside uh, and study carefully, there absolutely are uh, factions, there are conflicting leaders, uh, and to understand the dynamics of the movement, you really have to look at them. The uh, origins of the, the Taliban were in Kandahar, and most of the, so the founders were clerics from the greater Kandahar region in the southwest of Afghanistan, uh, all of whom were members of the Pashtun tribe. Uh, and they really see themselves as a sort of the, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the inheritors of the legacy of the, the first leader, Mullah Umar. Uh, and so uh, other, other members of the movement who don't happen to be Kandahari clerics who speak Pashto tend to be treated as others. Now, there's a, a, an important faction which is quite well known in really in the, you know, in, in the media um, called the Haqqani Network. Uh, who uh, are are people who've been uh, aligned with the Haqqani clan, which is a basically a, you know, a a large family originally headed by Jalaluddin Haqqani, who was a, a cleric who fought against the Soviets, and his son uh, Khalifa Siraj uh, emerged as a, a deputy of the the movement. And uh, both Jalaluddin, the you know the old patriarch who's now dead, uh, and the the, so the leader of today, Siraj, they've both been uh, very generously patronised and protected by Pakistan's intelligence service, the ISI. So in a sense, they are the the, the part of the Taliban which has been most closely associated with the Pakistan security establishment and which has also been involved in many of the, the suicide bomb attacks in Kabul, you know, a particular part of the, the, the war and also in hostage taking of uh, international figures. Several Americans have been held hostage by them. Now, they've ended up as, in a sense, the, the, the main 
uh, alternative faction to the to the Kandaharis, and there's a real tussle going on between them. But in a sense, these are the so the two inside factions um, who are struggling for power inside the the movement, and now, in very real terms, struggling for power inside Kabul. But there's a there's a a broader, say, tendency, perhaps faction inside the movement, which is Taliban from the north of the country who neither you know, belong to the, so the tribe or clan or faction of the Haqqanis, nor do they hail from, from Kandahar. Many of them are members of Afghanistan's ethnic minorities, they, uh, particularly the Uzbeks and the Tajiks. They have a few uh, Hazaras and some, uh, there's an Arab tribe in, in Afghanistan. Uh, and the, uh, some of their clerics have been members of the Taliban movement since it was founded some 27 years ago, they've never really held power in the in the movement. And uh, increasingly during the years of the insurgency against the, the US and the, the internationally backed government, uh, they felt alienated from the leadership of the, the movement and they sort of you know, developed their own uh, identity as a as a tendency inside the, the movement. So we can you know we can refer to them as a uh, as a faction. Uh, and uh, they they really look at both the uh, both the Haqqanis and the Kandaharis and feeling neither of them is giving us a share in power. Uh, um, so you know they've you know they've got all these these classic political dilemmas. Do you struggle on inside the movement, stay loyal? Do you try and uh, you know, accept whatever crumbs you get from the leadership, uh, or do you uh, consider striking out on your own? Uh, and I would say finally, uh, another very interesting group inside the the movement uh, is we can say the the northern Pashtun Taliban. So these are, uh, yeah, like all Taliban, there tends to be clerics, but their, their language is Pashto, but they live not in Kandahar or eastern Afghanistan, but in northern Afghanistan, because they are members of tribes who historically have been encouraged by the Afghan central government to settle in the north of the country, essentially to keep down the natives. Uh, and they're really sort of torn in two directions because, in regional terms, you know they've they've got a certain uh, um, uh, uh, modus vivendi with their Uzbek-speaking and you know, and Persian-speaking Tajik neighbours, uh, but they have tribal link, tribal links either to Kandahar or eastern Afghanistan. They've also felt that they really haven't uh, got their just res just deserts, so or they haven't been uh, given a real share of power inside the movement and now inside the government. So they too are torn between uh, trying to assert their identity as Pashtuns and linked to the Kandaharis or standing by their uh, non-Pashtun neighbours. So they're an interesting sort of floating voter faction. You've commented elsewhere, Michael, on the policy failures of US-led endeavours in recent times, President Trump's plan and President Biden's approach to it. How should policy have been focused and implemented by the US and its allies? Yes, Richard, I'm really glad that you raised this point, because when I try to explain you know, concisely uh, why Afghanistan fell apart in August 2021, you know, my concise answer is bad policy. 
And the policy failings were primarily on the, the part of the, the US administrations. And we know there's been a succession of administrations involved. Um, so the latest one, of course, Biden, um, by, by my book, um, it was mistaken policies adopted by the, the Biden administration, um, you know, contributed to the collapse. But of course, on the you know, on the back of bad policy uh, by his predecessors, but also there were major policy failings on, on the the part of the Afghan government. Uh, when I tried to to explain what were the uh, the wrong policies and what should have been done better on the the U.S. side, um, uh, essentially they focused. For they, you know, they, well, for, first, we knew that they wanted to end their direct involvement in the Afghan conflict, and I think there was a broad consensus that this was sort of a sensible thing to try and uh, to try and do. It wasn't necessary for the U.S. to have an expeditionary force uh, based in Afghanistan forever, but when they set about doing it, they they tried to negotiate with the Taliban. Firstly, to get sort of, sort of safe passage arrangements for their own forces, uh, and then to see if they could persuade the Taliban to come on board uh, with uh, some, some kind of political agreement so that the Americans would hand over a peaceful Afghanistan or leave a peaceful Afghanistan. But in the way they did that, they essentially built up the Taliban. They gave them legitimacy. They also gave them significant military advanta advantages and in so doing, they delegitimized, demoralized, and weakened the Afghan government. And to my mind, this was exactly the opposite of what a departing military power in Afghanistan should have been doing. Of course, they had to engage with the, the Taliban, and I've been you know, one of the, um, the main advocates of that over the, uh, over the years. Uh, but the primary negotiation and work should have been with the Afghan administration because they should have anticipated that it, was, it would not have been possible to end this conflict uh, before the withdrawal of the, the U.S. troops. And therefore, they should have left the, the Afghan government in good standing. Uh, they should have anticipated that the Afghan government would have had to withstand an onslaught from the Taliban after the, the withdrawal of US troops. They should have invested in the resilience of that administration to give it a better chance of actually reaching peace, not before the US withdrawal, but after the US withdrawal. You mentioned there, Michael, that one of the attractions of withdrawal for US politicians was the appeal of extricating the states from an enduring conflict. But you've also mentioned earlier in our conversation that the conflict itself is going to endure and to carry on. Could you say something about your view of the likely implications in terms of the contours of that conflict, insofar as it can be predicted over coming years in Afghanistan itself? Yes, and, and thank you for you know, raising this fundamental point, because this goes against some of the, so the popular speaking points that yeah, I know people around the U.S. administration and those you know, sympathetic to them have been using, sort of saying that they, the 20-year war is over. Uh, well, the, you know, the, the direct U.S. military intervention in the conflict in Afghanistan uh, is over for now, uh, but the conflict in Afghanistan is definitely not over. I see the, so the Afghan content of that conflict as really being about a, a struggle over the 
reworking the social contract inside the country in the wake of it having been destabilized in the early stages of conflict. So, you know, you can date back you know, a first big move to uh, 1973, when the sort of the Anshan regime of the uh, the Afghan uh, monarchy and the social uh, contract which it had uh, with the peoples inside the country uh, that was disturbed by a coup. But then there was a further coup in in 1978 when a, a left leaning uh, revolutionary uh, political party took over, soon followed by uh, the Soviet intervention. And that they those upended the you know, what what was remained of the social contract sort of after you know, after Dowd, and much of the story inside Afghanistan since then you know, has been how do we as Afghans live together, and also how do we as Afghans, while trying to better our position in the country and in the power structure and with access to resources, how do we leverage our relationship with outside powers and those who are intervening in our conflict so as to, you know, to get one over our uh, local rivals. Now, I know that this is, not the, this is not the way that either the Soviets or the US uh, understood the conflict um, from you know, uh, while they were involved, but it's the way that many Afghan actors consider the conflict, uh, and you know, and it is you know it continues to be fought in those terms, but as you know, has been the case really at every stage since 1973, uh, there's a regional and international dimension to the conflict, uh, and that is in part which will you know continue to concern the uh, the U.S. as we go forward. So you know, for example. They, uh, the Afghan, the, sorry, the, the Pakistani security services have worked with, protected, and supported the Taliban for their own reasons uh, since soon after the foundation of the movement, and certainly during the the twenty years of the insurgency uh, against the U.S.-backed administration. Uh, so the you know the the Pakistani security service has been taking a sort of you know, victory lap of Kabul over the past month. You know our boys uh, managed to defeat the Americans uh, is the you know the way that I'm sure that they they like to uh, they like to see it, uh, and. Uh, yeah, as the as the, sort of the, the 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 those elements of Pakistan who have been you know, accused of, and there's plenty of evidence to you know to to back those accusations up, uh, of sponsoring regional jihadi organisations who are uh, firstly active against India, uh, but also have some track record of trying to intervene in uh, you know, in Iran against the Shia-led. Um, government in, in Iran, uh, those organizations are now looking to receive uh, protection to use uh, Afghanistan as a sort of a safe space for organizing the next round of their jihad against India. Well, that immediately, that immediately labels this as a regional conflict. I mean, India, can, India cannot expect to take lying down um, the, the prospect of the uh, of Afghanistan being you know controlled by a, a force opposed to them and willing to uh, to host uh, militant jihadi groups um, who you know, who are battling against them, uh, we've seen different stances taken by the the regional powers around Afghanistan. The Uzbekistan's are trying to keep sort of quiet about what they're thinking, you know, engaging with the Taliban, Turkmenistan, also Tajikistan coming out very clearly. 
um, f uh, saying that they regard the the presence of a Taliban-led and you know Islamic militant uh, uh, regime next door uh, a threat to to Central Asia. Um, f uh, you know, so uh, we know that opponents of the Taliban uh, can look to receive some kind of sanctuary and support in neighboring countries. So you know, the 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 U.S. while pulling out its troops has got to look back and see a, you know, a country whether there really are quite fundamental drivers of conflict not yet addressed inside the country. There are regional actors uh, you know, who are involved and are likely to get even more involved. Uh, and then, of course, there, there are so many ways in which we know that Afghan conflicts can spill over uh, into the region and you know, stretching as far as, uh, as Europe, you know, Northern Ireland, wherever. They, uh, there's a lot of concern over the possibility of large-scale refugee flows. If there's a, this economic crisis uh, you know, develops, as many of us uh, expect, uh, combined with Taliban pressure on the population, the yeah, Afghan refugees, frankly, they, they know the way to Europe. Yeah, you just have to uh, you know, walk or truck your way through Iran and through Turkey, and you're in Europe. Um, uh, so the, the second sort of spillover factor, of course, uh, is international terrorism. Now, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, if we're to ask how many bomb plots are being hatched in uh, Afghanistan um, to be played out against sort of, you know, Western interests or in, the, uh, in Europe or the US, well, I think only a very you know, specialist few people who've um, either you know, terrorists themselves or counter-terrorism experts uh, may have direct sight of that. But I think we certainly we certainly can say that what's happened in Afghanistan over the the past month and a bit uh, has provided encouragement and inspiration to uh, militants on all sorts of fronts of the global jihad, uh, and uh, it's, it's likely to have you know practical consequences uh, as well, uh, not least in the fact that. Uh, quite a few militants were already present, enjoying the the protection of the Taliban, and they sort of uh, reckon that um, now Afghanistan is going to become an even more safe space for them to to use in whatever operations they have outside the country. Taliban promises to the country, notwithstanding. Uh, and the 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 third factor in which we've se traditionally seen spillover from Afghan conflicts uh, is organised crime and particularly the the narcotics trade. The Taliban have sort of a uh, sort of a somewhat you know, troubled history of relationship with narcotics. Um, they have benefited immensely from the, the, the financial proceeds of the, the trade in opium and, uh, um, uh, and heroin and, uh, and also uh, methamphetamines. Um, they, uh, but they also have at times uh, clamped down on it. They, you know, they have the kind of control in the the opium produ producing areas where they are able to uh, to clamp down on cultivation if they if they wish to. Uh, but uh, yeah, often they've been accused of just using that to try and um, you know f uh, do supply management, push the push the price up. Uh, but uh, I think that with the uh, with the arrival of the the Taliban regime, uh, any any attempt or pretense at uh, counter narcotics policy for the moment is suspended, uh, and that's something which I know that people will be looking at very uh, very closely. Uh, will the Taliban uh, choose to um, to allow or even encourage um, the 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 export of uh, the, the vast majority of the world's heroin, or could they be yeah, encouraged to take a stand against it? Thank you. I know that people listening will want to 
follow Professor Michael Semple's ongoing analysis of Afghanistan. Uh, in order to do that, people can go to the website of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice here at Queen's University at Belfast, where there'll be resources which will allow you to follow Michael's insights. But Michael, for today's analysis, rich description, fascinating expert insights, profound thanks from all of us to Michael Semple. Thank you. <laughs>